Making innovation count. Why measuring innovation matters. The great management writer W. Edwards Deming had a powerful introduction to his talks on quality management. Pulling out a dollar bill and waving it in front of the audience, he'd point out the wording, In God we trust. And then go on to comment that in business life, the same principle could be applied, but with the afterthought. Everything else we should measure. His argument was simple. If we want to control something, we need to make sure we measure it. And that's as true of innovation as any other business process. Although it can appear to be about inspiration, intuition and risk-taking, the fact is that it's a process and needs managing as such. That's a point driven home by countless studies and it underpins the ISO standard for thinking about innovation as a manageable activity. And if we want to manage the process, the first question we need to ask is, can we measure it? Well, the good news is, of course, yes. But that begs a second question about what we measure. Part of the problem with trying to manage innovation by the numbers is that there are so many different views on what can be measured and the relative importance of these. Certainly, we can look at inputs, spending on research and development, for example. And we can look at outputs, number of patents, percentage of sales derived from new products, number of ideas suggested by employees, and so on. But the real challenge lies in finding ways to monitor and measure the process itself. Let's take an analogy, driving a car. Now clearly there are important things we'd like to measure before we set off to ensure we've got a good chance of reaching our destination. Have we got enough fuel in the tank or battery? Is there sufficient oil to stop the engine overheating? Ditto water for the radiator? Are the brakes and other safety systems in good condition? These days, car manufacturers helpfully provide sensors which can display the status of all of these and warn us if there's a problem before we let off the handbrake. They're all examples of input measures, reminding us of what we ought to put in place if we want to go travelling. And at the other end of our journey, we can apply various output measures. Most importantly, did we reach our destination safely? But we can also measure other things which might help us in the future when we next choose to travel. For example, how long did it take us? How much fuel did we use? Was it a comfortable journey? And so on. But the measurements we really rely on are those which give us information while we're driving and that hopefully give us warning if we need to make any corrections. If we're going too fast, if the engine's too hot, if the tyre pressures are too low, we need to do something about it. The dashboard or driver display is the nerve centre of this whole process. And these days it's moved on from the simple speedometer and rev counter to give us a wealth of real-time information. We can tell the status of all sorts of systems with a glance, and even if we aren't actively looking, there are verbal and other warnings to attract our attention built in. The range of information available to us has grown, and it's no longer confined to the performance of the vehicle itself. We now have access to a rich source of information about the wider context. Navigation aids like GPS tell us not only where we are, but what different routes are available should problems emerge on the road ahead. 
They take into account weather and accidents and roadworks to give us updated, real-time information about the wider world. Importantly, they also offer advice and guidance to assist our own decision-making about course correction, speed and style of driving. And with novel sensors bent in, we even have access to predictive information, warning us of dangerous situations which might develop, carrying out a kind of forecasting operation on our behalf. In fact, the biggest problem in control may be the sheer volume of information available to us and the competing demands it makes on our attention and decision-making capacity. Now, of course, managing innovation is a lot more complex than a simple car journey, not least because there's so much more uncertainty involved. A closer analogy might be to flying a plane, where you're trying to navigate in three-dimensional space, maintaining a healthy distance from other aircraft, dealing with changing weather conditions, keeping 400 tonnes of metal on a reasonably straight and level course, and eventually landing it all safely. Not for nothing do modern airliners have cockpits resembling Las Vegas in terms of the number of lights, dials, digital displays and other measurement indicators. So, innovation measurement is critical, and its absence shows up in pretty graphic fashion. Trying to run a startup without keeping an eye on key variables like cash flow is a good recipe for quickly becoming an end-up. And project managers who don't keep a sharp eye on key milestones and progress towards them may find themselves in trouble for overrunning budgets, falling behind timescales, or missing key delivery dates or marketing windows. So far, so obvious. We need to monitor something as uncertain as innovation very carefully. But the real value of measurement isn't that it tells us we're off course or running late. It's that it gives us a chance to react to change direction. Process control involves loops, not simply status monitoring. Sensors detect what's going on, controllers work out what the implications are and decide on corrective action, and actuators effect change to bring the system back under control. The earlier we detect drift away from our desired set point, the sooner we can try to correct the situation. Today's emphasis on agile innovation reflects this, building in high-frequency loops which allow for measurement and correction, pivoting. Importantly, there's also an element of learning. It's not simply a matter of bringing things back under control, but also learning for the future. Whether in a lean startup or a major software project, the same principle applies, a learning cycle. We can build into our controller a memory of what control action worked in the past so as to improve its effectiveness over time. And it's not just about the individual project. We can also deploy control loops at the strategic level, reviewing progress across a portfolio of product, service and process innovation. The power of stage gates and other tools is that they monitor at a system level, looking at the big picture. Even if performance on some key process measures is adequate, there may be questions about whether or not this is still the right thing to do in a rapidly changing environment. And sometimes it needs an unpopular decision. That kill or stop choice is a hard one to make, but without it, 
especially in public sector projects driven by strong political forces, without it, we're likely to hear the lumbering sound of white elephants. Now, sometimes this meta-level strategic control system intervenes to perform a course correction, but sometimes it will involve a complete innovation system reset. Take the case of ABC Electronics a thriving player in the good old days of the pre-liberalised telecommunications sector in the UK. It had one major customer, the General Post Office, and one new product development project every three years, replacing and upgrading the phones in the iconic red telephone kiosks. But fast forward to the days when they were riding the incredible growth wave around mobile phones. Their core expertise of acoustics, electronics and plastics moulding meant they were drowning in opportunities, with the result that they were taking on more and more projects, but still trying to control them via the same old process. They were soon locked in a dangerous spiral of increasing costs, time overruns, unhappy customers and an accelerating crisis. It took a major reset to bring them out of this spin, changing the innovation system to bring in key elements like portfolio management, stage gate controls and product management. Experienced companies are not immune. For decades, 3M were regular residents at the top echelons of Lee tables listing the world's most innovative companies. But in the early years of the new millennium, they began to slip down the rankings. By 2007, a Business Week cover feature was talking about 3M's innovation crisis. Careful reflection highlighted a problem with their control system. The enthusiastic adoption of Six Sigma principles had led to a tightening up of performance but in the process had squeezed out their capacity for radical breakthrough thinking. Once again, a reset was needed to adjust the innovation control system to allow more freedom and flexibility back into their corporate innovation approach. Perhaps one of the most significant shifts was that carried out at Procter & Gamble as it wrestled with the shift towards open innovation. For nearly two centuries, they built and operated an effective innovation model based around research and development, generating all the technical and market knowledge they needed to deliver a steady stream of consumer product innovations. But an internal strategic review team sensed that they were increasingly missing out on opportunities being offered by an outside world rich in different and complementary knowledge. This culminated in the shift to connect and develop, the banner beneath which they re-engineered their whole innovation system. Led from the top by the new chief executive, Alan Laffley, and with a clear, but for its time, very ambitious target of sourcing half its innovations from outside, the programme was launched in 1999. Close to a quarter of a century later, and they're still adapting putting in place new routines for external collaboration, letting go of others which had served them well over many years. The learning process has paid off. Breakthrough innovations resulting from Connect and Develop include Olay Regenerist, Swiffer Dusters, the Crest Spin Brush and Glad Forceflex Refuse Bags. 
Procter & Gamble's continued growth has come in large measure from external ideas, which now account for well over the targeted 50%. Which raises the question of innovation accounting. Now, whether course correction or full system reboot, innovation management is about creativity and control, which puts the measurement system at the heart of things. From the operational improvement loops typified by the plan, do, check, act cycles, which underpin shop floor process innovation, through to project level control. Innovation measurement not only gives us better control, but also an opportunity to learn. PDCA tools continue to drive the Kaizen approach, little improvements from everyone, which make Lean and Six Sigma such powerful approaches. Companies like Toyota can point to half a century or more of successful growth on the back of this. And what we've learned about innovation management at system level, embedded now in the International Standards Organization model, has come in large measure from careful analysis of success and failure at the project level and of building operating routines out of that. In their excellent book on innovation accounting, Dan Toma and Esther Gons argue this point strongly, placing particular emphasis on building a hierarchy of control based not only on a clear dashboard of measures to manage the operational side, but also developing measures around the long-term strategic development of the organisation. They focus on things like the building up of the knowledge base and the training and human resource systems designed to create and maintain a culture of innovation. The timescale involved in such measurement system needs to be long. We're talking about years before the effect of strategic investments into new knowledge or human resources might pay off. Take the case of the German company Heller. For much of the 20th century, a key supplier of lighting systems to the automobile industry. Back in the 1980s, they thought long and hard about making the, then, risky move into microelectronics. They had some experience in simple solid-state devices like flashers and brake lights, but the move into a whole new field would be expensive and disruptive. They had to compete in a very tight labour market for the scarce skills involved. They had to find ways to house and equip a completely new development team. And most important, they had to redesign their organisation to integrate the new knowledge architecture involved in the shift. Not surprisingly, there were critics, but the longer view prevailed. This proved fortunate for the business, since the division which the small team grew into now accounts for around 60% of the company's business. And it's their growth engine for the future, embedded in the increasingly intelligent and autonomous vehicles now moving from concept design to the streets outside. Apart from the direct value of this investment, it also helped reinforce the long-cycle strategic control system in the business. From its early days as a startup back in the 19th century, it's been faced with similar strategic choices about building capability and technical competence, and it's learned to take a long view. 
Innovation strategy involves difficult decisions and they need a measurement system able to reflect these long-term intangible benefits as much as the shorter-term returns on investment and other operational performance indicators. Another way of looking at this challenge comes from the work of Chris Argaris and Donald Schon and their concept of double-loop learning. They argue that organisations not only need a control loop, but also the capacity to step back and review and reset that control system, what they call double-loop learning. In a highly simplified analogy, it's like a central heating or air conditioning system. The thermostat is a single-loop control which makes sure the room temperature is maintained at the level we set it to. But changes in the environment, a sudden cold snap or heat wave, might mean we need to rethink our needs and step in to reset the controller. It's the same in organisations managing their innovation systems. They need this meta-level capacity to reflect and reset. Dynamic capability. Which was something else which W. Edwards Deming was keen on? Outlining his famous 14 points for management in his book Out of the Crisis, he laid particular emphasis on the role of strategic leadership to help ensure that the organisation was able to improve constantly and forever. And he was pretty clear that doing this would involve much more than a slogan. (laughs) 